0: Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. Father, we thank you once again for your Word. Thank you, Lord, for uh, your people, Lord. Um, Thank you, Lord, for the prayer warriors and... We thank you for the worship team and those working in the sound booth. And Lord, we do, we do thank you for technology. We, we know that it's being used for evil sometimes, but it can be used to um, bring you glory. And so we want to use it to bring you glory tonight. And so uh, we, we just pray uh, uh, just for everything this evening, Lord, that, that your Holy Spirit will have his way. Um, we pray, Father, for our hearts to be open and receptive. Uh, to your word and whatever work you desire to do in and through us uh, via your Holy Spirit. And I do thank you for this opportunity to break the bread of your word with people, your people. And if there's anybody who's listening who's not a Christian at this time, I thank you for the opportunity to share with them as well. So, Father, I do pray that I would decrease and you would increase. I pray for the gift of teaching and a fresh filling of your spirit, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Second Samuel chapter one. And so, as usual, we do have a title for the study. And the title is What Do You See? What Do You See? And so, since we are starting um, another book, and technically it's, it's, it's one book, but you'll, you'll see what I mean by that. But, but since we are starting. A new section of Samuel, I should say. Um, We are going to do a brief introduction, and so as I shared before, uh, First and Second Samuel were originally one book in the Hebrew canon, and a canon is basically a list of books which are acknowledged as being divinely inspired and are included in the Scriptures or in the Bible. And so the books that are included in the Hebrew Bible or scriptures are actually grouped as follows. And Jesus even hints at this in, in Luke chapter 24, verse 44. And I'm not going to turn there, but, but you can jot it down if you want to or take a picture of the screen. And, and so they're grouped as follows in the Hebrew Bible. You have the law, also known as the Torah. And so, of course, you have Genesis through uh, Deuteronomy. You have the prophets, and the prophets is, you know, it's broken up into two many sections there. And so you have the former prophets, which would include Joshua, Judges, Samuel, that's one book, or also known as 1st and 2nd Samuel in the English Bible. And then you have Kings, aka, or also known as 1st and 2nd Kings in our English Bibles. And then you have the latter prophets, which would include Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the book of the 12. And the book of the 12 is what we would call the minor uh, prophets. And so those are the first two sections in the Hebrew scriptures or in the Hebrew Bible, which we call the Old Testament. They don't call it the Old Testament. And then you have uh, the writings. Which would include Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Songs, or also, it's also known as Song of Solomon, uh, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. And of course, in our Bible, it's broken up as 1st and 2nd Chronicles. And so uh, this is the way the books of the Hebrew Bible um, are, are broken up. But it's the same, these are the same books that we have. And so the arrangement, some of you may be wondering, well, how did it get this way in the English Bible? You know, how come it's, you know, first and second Samuel now instead of, um, you know, just being Samuel? And how come it's not quite in the same order as in the Hebrew Bible? Well, the, the arrangement of the Old Testament that, that's found in the English Bible, is actually comes from... The Latin Vulgate translation, and the Latin Vulgate was translated um, they used the Septuagint or the Greek version of the Old Testament, and so it was in the Septuagint or the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament that's where you see the divisions and and so forth that we use today in our English Bibles but there is really no cause for concern because we have the same books, and that there's there's nothing lost. Everything God wanted to be put in here is in there. So, just wanted to point out that it's just different arrangements, but once again, same books. And also wanted to let you know that uh, instead of First and Second Samuel in the Hebrew Bible, it's just Samuel in the Hebrew Bible. And so, what we're looking at is a continuation of the same story. But, but I do want to touch on the date of the writing that we see in what we call 2 Samuel. Well, first of all, it was written in the 10th century BC, before Christ. I know people are trying to change that, but I still use the terminology before Christ. And as with 1 Samuel, no, we don't know exactly who the author is of 2 Samuel you know some have suggested the prophets Nathan and Gad for the as far as the human writers of uh, the events of 2 Samuel and I and I have to mention the human writers because we know that God is the author but of course he uses he he uses man to you know, to write down his word. And so he breathed it out. He set aside certain individuals that he wanted uh, to record his breathe out word, and they recorded it. And it just so happens we don't know exactly who it is. Uh, But it could be Nathan and Gad, and that's based on 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 29. That's how some people come to that conclusion. And some suggest that it's Abiathar, the priest, um, who could be the human writer who could have recorded God's uh, inspired or breathed out words that we see in 2 Samuel. And the thought of or the suggestion of Abiathar being uh, the human writer is uh, 2 Samuel chapter 15, uh, verse 35. And I'll share those scriptures with you so that you know where uh, the Bible scholars come up with some of these ideas as far as who was the human writer. Uh, But at any rate, God is... The author, But now the content or what we're going to see in 2 Samuel is going to deal with the life of um, King David, more about his life and specifically more about his reign. Because he didn't take the throne in 1 Samuel. He was anointed, yes, but he didn't assume the throne. King Saul was still alive. During that time. And so we're going to see the life more about the life and we're going to see the reign of King David, his ups and his downs. In fact, some suggest that second Samuel could be called the book of David. Since it focuses heavily on him and his reign. And so in second Samuel. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to see that the story is going to pick up where First Samuel left off. And so essentially it serves as a transition from, once again, the reign of King Saul to the reign of David, God's king. Because remember, Saul was the king of the people. The people, they clamored for a king. They rejected God as king. It was supposed to be a theocracy with God ruling, but they rejected his rule and they asked for a human king so they can be like the other nations. And so God gave them what they wanted. And so Saul, the first king of Israel, was the king of the people. It was based on their choice, based on what they wanted. But David or King David, this is God's choice, and we're going to see a difference here. And so just to catch you up as far as the story is concerned, uh, previously, uh, the Lord had intervened and he had stopped David and his men from teaming up with the Philistines to fight against the Israelites. And after returning to Ziklag, where it, which is the place that David and his men were staying, David and his men had discovered that their families and their possessions had been taken, and they 'd been taken by the malachites and so David, after seeking the lord's will, he goes after the Malachites and he recovers the people as well as the possessions and so nothing, and no one was lost. And meanwhile, if you remember the end of 1 Samuel, we saw that King Saul and three of his sons died. And those three sons are Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua. They're the ones who died during this battle against the Philistines at the end of First Samuel. And so we continue that story in verse one of second Samuel. It says, now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites and David had stayed two days in Ziklag on the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust On his head, which was a sign of mourning or grief. And so it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and he prostrated himself. And of course, that will be an act of great respect and submission to David. And so David said to him in verse 3, Where have you come from? And so he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And then David said to him, how did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, the people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. And so in these verses, we see David's concern for his people. And he was concerned for them because, of course, they were involved in the war against the Philistines. Now, remember, as I shared, David had just come from his own battle uh, against the Amalekites. But what I gleaned from this is that every now and then, maybe we too should show this same level of concern that David had shown for his people. And so just as he asked how his people had done in warfare... I think that we as believers, since all of us are involved in spiritual warfare, we should be concerned about each other. We should be asking each other, hey, how are you doing? I know there is a spiritual enemy who is after you, Satan and, of course, the fallen angels whom he persuaded. Remember, he persuaded a third of God's angels to come with him. And so all of us as believers are involved in spiritual warfare. So every now and then, it, it's okay to, to send a text. It's okay to Pick up a phone. It's okay to take each other out to breakfast or lunch and say, how's it going? How are you doing in your spiritual battle? Are you being victorious over those temptations that the enemy is putting your way? Even though we, too, are in our own battle, it's okay to ask each other, hey, how are you doing? Has the Lord been been helping you to experience victory in your spiritual warfare that you're going through? We should show that same level of concern that that David is showing here for his people. And in verse five, it says, so David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? Then the young man who told him said, as I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear and indeed the chariots and horsemen that is the chariots and horsemen of the Philistines, they followed hard after Saul. Now when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me again, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. And so this Amalekite man, he said, So I stood over King Saul and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet or this armband that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 31 verses 4 and 6 and also in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, we'll see that well, we'll see that Saul died by suicide. And those scriptures seem to be clear that, that he killed himself. It says that he died. And so many Bible teachers believe that this Amalekite man is lying. And why would, it be, would he be lying? Well, he wants to ingratiate himself to the one who's going to become the new king to the one who's going to be uh, sitting on the throne now as king of Israel. And so that's what many Bible scholars believe. And and that's what I believe as well, that this man is lying. And unfortunately, today, sometimes people are still lying in order to impress others and, and maybe hoping to gain something from them. Maybe they want to gain a position. Maybe they want to gain a relationship with someone. Maybe they want to hopefully gain some type of financial reward from them. And so they're going to uh, try to impress them by lying. And so it still happens today. And so in verse 11, it says, therefore, David took hold of his own clothes So he heard that news, terrible news. And you would think that for David, that would have been good news because King Saul has been out to kill him multiple times, chasing him down and has come close to to killing David. But the Lord spared his life. So you would think he would be happy. But David, it says he took hold of his own clothes and He torn them again, a a sign that he was in mourning. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son. For the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And so. As I look at these verses in verses 11 and 12, to me, this is another sign that, that, that David is not a pretender here. He was not pretending in those moments where, where he showed great restraint against King Saul. In those moments when he could have killed King Saul, but, but he didn't take him out. Because King Saul saw David as the enemy. He was envious of him. But David never saw him as an enemy. And so we've read that in in 1 Samuel. But here it shows that those moments where he showed respect to Saul were not moments of pretense. Because if there would have been any moment um, that he could have stopped pretending this would have been it. He would have thrown a party. I could see him grieving uh, for Jonathan, his best friend, but not for Saul. But no, there was no pretense with him. He literally respected the office. He literally saw him as the chosen king, the anointed He really respected him, respected the office. It was no pretense. And so the question comes to mind. And that question is, are we one way around people when they're around or or when they are alive? Uh, But then when when they're no longer around us or alive, do we behave differently? Do, Do we talk bad? about people behind their backs. But when they're around, we act like we're best friends with them. Do we mistreat people all the time that they're alive, and then when they die and we get up on stage and we start boo-hooing like we were best friends? You know, and then somebody once said, and I, and I think it was in a play or something like that, they say you can always tell the person who didn't do right by somebody because they're the loudest ones at the funeral. And sometimes it's the case, I've been to <laughs> to, to many memorial services or funerals, but the ones here, of course, I'm not, the ones here, definitely genuine, we, we do things a different way, but but I've been to some where it's just, you see, you just hear and see crazy stuff, and so um, whatever that guy said in that play, I totally understood it. You see, but David was not pretending. He was not pretending. And, and for us today, you know, I would encourage us to not be hypocritical, to not act like we're best friends with somebody when they're in our faces, but, but when they're not around, we act totally different. Because that person may not see, that person may not hear. But we have to remember this, that God always sees, that God always hears, and that God, of course, knows our hearts. And verse 13, it says, then David said to the young man who told him, where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien or There's somebody. Oh, I knew it was aliens. No, he's talking about a foreigner, okay? An Amalekite who lives in your land. And so in verse 14, he says, so David said to him, how was it you were not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed or the Lord's appointed king? Then David called one of the young men and said, go near and execute him. And this young man did. He executed this Amalekite man and he died. And so David said to him, your blood is on your own head, for your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. See, one thing about the Malachites is that they were the people that the Lord has sworn that he would have War against from generation to generation. He swore that he would have war against these people. Why? Because they attacked the, the Israelites as they were coming out of Egypt. As they were coming out of Egypt and were in a weakened state, had just come out of bondage. The Amalekites came and they attacked the weakest amongst them. And God, of course, was displeased with that. And so he said, from generation to generation, I'm going to have war against the Amalekites. And these were also the same people in First Samuel that, that God had told King Saul to utterly destroy, destroy them as well as all of their animals, as well as their livestock. You see, God was using or wanted to use him as an instrument of judgment against the Amalekites, but King Saul was disobedient. He spared the king of the Amalekites. And then, of course, he allowed the people to spare the best of their animals. He was disobedient. But, but, but these are the same people that we saw in 1 Samuel that God told King Saul to destroy. And, and then on top of that, the, the Amalekites were the people that, that God had just fought. These were the same people that invaded Ziklag where David and his 600 men and their families were staying in Philistine territory. Because remember, David had tried to escape. He was escaping from Saul and that's where he was living during that time. But but these Amalekites, they invaded Ziklag. They, they took uh, the families of David and those 600 men. They took their possessions and and these are the same people David fought against. And was victorious against. And on top of all that. This man who said he was an Amalekite. He claimed to kill the king. The same king that David saw as the anointed of the Lord. The, the, he saw him as the man that God had appointed. He respected that office. And if anyone should have wanted to kill King Saul, it, 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 it should have been David, but David refrained. And, and here is this Amalekite saying that he took out the king. And so here we see once again that David was true to his character. True to his character in, in the fact that he respected uh, the office of King Saul. In verse 17, it says, then David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son, and he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. And indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. And so David, he he composed, he wrote this funeral song for, for Saul and Jonathan, and he began to lament. And so here again, we can see why David is called the sweet psalmist of Israel. I don't know if you heard that about David before, but, but that's one of his nicknames. He's, he's called the sweet psalmist of Israel. And, and this lamentation is beautiful, and, and we're going to get into that. But once again, this, this funeral song is called the, the song of the bow. And we see here that it was contained in the book of Jasher. And this book of Jasher is also mentioned in Joshua chapter 10, verse 13. And the book of Jasher, if you're wondering, it was probably an early collection of poetic songs that that commemorated Israel's heroic deeds. And some people are probably thinking, oh, here we are. See, we don't have all the books that belong in the Bible. Well, well, just because God used information from the book of Jasher, it doesn't mean that it belongs in the canon of Scripture. And remember, the canon refers to the list of books which are acknowledged of being divinely inspired and are included in the Bible. So just because the Bible has information from that, doesn't mean that the book of jasher belongs here but but this book of jasher whatever it was it it's been lost but i wouldn't call it a missing book of the bible because everything god wanted us to have we have it and that's an apologetics lesson for another day of how do we know we have what we have and how come certain books didn't make it into the canon of scripture that's an apologetics topic for another day but, but yes, the book of Joshua is lost, but once again, it is not a missing book of the Bible. But one thing we know from verses 17 and 18 is that David want, wanted the later generations to know about Saul and Jonathan. And so he composed this song, this song of the bow. And once again, we see the sweet psalmist of Israel's heart. We see David's heart. This man was not intending to, to wipe out the memory of his predecessor, even though he, he threw spears at him and, and, and wanted to hunt him down, and he even messed up his marriage. Messed up his marriage. And so we see his heart here. But I don't want to get rid of Saul's memory. I I genuinely love this man. And I hate that this man died this way. That's David's heart. And I know I've been anointed king. But you know what? It's not my place to take him out. That's God's place to take him out. That's David's heart. And yes, we see it. We see it through his words. We see it. Through his actions. And guess what? Other people can see our heart as well. Uh, Other people can see our heart through our words and through our actions. And that's something that Jesus mentions, that Jesus alludes to in, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, for example. He says, for out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts false witness, and blasphemies. You see, the condition of the heart determines the words that comes out of our mouth. The condition of our hearts determines the actions that that we'll do. It all comes out of our heart. The condition of our hearts even affects our thoughts, as you see here, that out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts. See that murder if you have this bitterness and hatred pinned up in your heart that leads eventually or could lead to murder. If you're lusting. Watching X-rated material. First of all, you already committed that adultery in your heart, as Jesus says, but could also lead to that to you performing that action. Adulteries. No, and notice it says fornications with an S. That speaks of sexual immoralities. So under that, could, could, it could mean bestiality. It could mean homosexuality. It also includes sex outside of marriage. Fornications. All types of sexual immoralities. That's what it means. Thefts, false witness, blasphemies, or slander. All of that comes out of the heart. So what is the condition of our heart? I know one prayer that that I often uh, share with the Lord or or, or send up to the Lord for myself is, Lord, remove anything from our heart that doesn't belong in there. and, And please replace it with everything That you want to be in my heart. And so that's something that I regularly, I wouldn't say every single day, but I regularly uh, include in my prayers. We We have to be mindful of the conditions of our hearts. And so it's so important to spend time in the word every day. It's so important to keep your mind focused. On the Lord every day. It's so important to to pray every day. To stay in communication with your heavenly father. It's so important. Because the condition of our heart is at stake. Verses 19 and 20 says. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. And so we're we're looking at the song of the bow. We're looking at this funeral song. And he says, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised or these pagans triumph. And so by saying, tell it not in Gath and proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. He's just saying, don't tell them. Don't proclaim it in In these um, Philistine cities, don't don't tell it, don't proclaim it in our enemy city because you're going to give them an opportunity to rejoice and they're going to rejoice because King Saul and Jonathan and the Israelites are defeated. So don't don't tell it there. And for us, as far as we're concerned. I would say, do not give our spiritual enemy. A reason to rejoice don't give him a reason to to rejoice for example by falling into temptation you see the temptation is not the sin remember jesus was tempted by the devil but he didn't fall into it he remained sinless so the temptation is not the sin is is us falling into it that is the sin and so don't give the enemy a reason to rejoice by falling into that temptation. Do not give the enemy a reason to rejoice by holding on to bitterness and, and letting that fester. And, and then you have now this uncontrolled anger and hatred for people or for a certain person. Don't give the spiritual enemy, the devil, a reason to rejoice because you refuse to forgive someone. Or oh, We've been forgiven. We, we've received that great benefit in Christ, but we don't want to pass on that blessing to others. And unfortunately, that's not how some of us are thinking. That's how some of us are when it comes to unforgiveness, but... Oh, the enemy is rejoicing because he knows that as long as we stay in that place of unforgiveness, that it's going to affect our walk with the Lord, that it's going to affect our fellowship with the Lord. And I believe it could also hinder our prayers. In fact, it also says in the scriptures, and this is Jesus talking when he said it, That if you don't forgive others of their trespasses, neither will your father forgive you of your trespasses. And so, yes, the enemy will have a reason to rejoice. And so don't give him a reason to rejoice by falling into the trap of these various examples that I've shared with you. But then the song continues in verse 21. "O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon you, nor fields of offering. And again, this refers to the grain that will be offered to the Lord. He says, for the shield of the mighty is cast away there. The shield of Saul not anointed with oil. See, the warriors, they would anoint their 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 shields, their leather shields with oil. And it would, of course, one of the things it would do, it it would preserve those leather shields. And so. There is a curse that's pronounced on the mountains of, of Gilboa because that's where Saul and his sons died. So we see that in the song. And in verses 22 and 23, it says, From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, that is those strong men, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives and in their death. They were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. And and so as it is presented in the song, Saul and Jonathan were heroic and they went down fighting. And they remained together in death. And O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel, And so here we see this command to weep over Saul because of how he provided them with luxury and riches. And so it it speaks of prosperity. And so, in other words, in this song is saying, since you prospered somewhat under Saul's rule, of course, not spiritually, but but we see in these material things. Since you prospered under his rule, don't forget weep over him. And in verses 25 to 27, it says in this song, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places, speaking of Gilboa's heels. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. And your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. And so now he singles out Jonathan, his best friend, this brave warrior, this man of high character. And he was of high character because Jonathan was not, he wasn't going to get in the way of God making David the next king of Israel. You see, Jonathan could have gotten jealous because he he would have been the next king of Israel if Saul hadn't messed up and was rebellious. But Jonathan was okay with God's plan. He, he acknowledged God's plan. He accepted it. No jealousy, no envy. He even stood up for David when, when Saul, his father, wanted to kill David. Jonathan stepped in and he took up for David. Even though this man was going to be the king, he didn't say, man, that's supposed to be my spot. In fact, Jonathan was willing to be second in command to David. But he would never see that opportunity because, of course, he would die at the end of 1 Samuel. And so that's the type of man that, that, that Jonathan was. And David appreciated that. They remain best friends to the end. So it's no surprise that, that in this song here that he was single out Jonathan. But, but I, I, I bet you, and I'm not a betting person, but But I bet you that some of you are probably shocked tonight when you have read or have heard of David's response and his actions after Saul's death. Because you probably would have expected him to be happy. You probably would have expected him to throw a party because you remember how Saul treated David. You remember how Saul was jealous of David how he schemed against them and how he tried to kill them on multiple occasions. And so you're probably shocked that he would say all of these nice things about King Saul. You remember the bad about Saul and I remember the bad about Saul. But David here, he chose to focus on the positive and remember Saul in that way or in that manner. And I do not get an indication at all that Saul was a believer when he died. I don't get that indication. But yet and still, David chose to focus on the positive and remember him in that way. And even pass that on through this song, this song of the boat. And it's moments like this that we've seen in Second Samuel chapter 1. It's moments like this that endears David to Bible readers. You know, it's moments like this that I personally in eternity would, would love to, to chat with King David. You see, as David responds this way, we come to understand why he is called a man after God's own heart. We can definitely see God's connection to God, I'm sorry, David's connection to God in his treatment of Saul and in his grieving after Saul, after his death. We see David's connection to God in his grieving of him, in his mourning of him, in his kind words. We see this connection. Because it is God who says not to speak evil of dignitaries. And so so David, we see, is obeying that. It, It is God who says that love does not keep a record of wrong. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which many call the love chapter. In verse 5, it says, speaking of love, it, it does not behave rudely. It's, it does not seek its own. It is not provoked or irritable. It thinks no evil. In other words, it means it, it, love keeps no record of being wrong. And so, yeah, you remember what people done to you, but, but you don't keep bringing it up, especially if you say that you have forgiven them. You don't use it as a tool if there's another disagreement that comes up. Oh, I remember this, but I thought you forgave me of that. Well, and it goes on from there. See, God is able to do that because our sins were washed away by the blood of Christ. And so, God Himself does not keep a record of our wrongs in that sense. We're forgiven. We are not condemned. When He looks upon us, He sees us in Christ. You know, it is the same God who tells us to not rejoice when our enemy falls. And David is doing that. And so once again, we see David's connection to God and his, um, and and it makes sense. Once again, he's being called or he is called a man after God's own heart. But in Proverbs 24, 17, it says, do not rejoice when your enemy falls and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Oh, we see David being obedient to that in his connection to God here. It is the Lord who... Had it recorded that love covers a multitude of sins. Oh, and it's the love of Christ. His blood. God the Father, they, they cover the multitude of our sins. And for us as Christians, how, how does that apply to us? Well, we may know what a person has done, but we don't go out sharing that with everyone. And once again, we don't keep bringing it up to them. It is God who included flawed individuals in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. You read some of these things about these people in the hall of faith. You'd be like, wait a minute. I remember they kind of messed up here and there. but, but, But there's nothing negative said about them. So God includes those flawed individuals in his hall of faith in Hebrews 11. And it is the same God who looks at believers through the lens of grace, mercy, and through the lens of Christ. And so through grace, mercy, and Christ, through that lens, God sees us as holy. He sees us as holy positionally. We're set apart to him. He sees us as righteous. How is that? Because the righteousness of Christ is imputed into our account. And so when he, when he sees us as believers, of course we're forgiven, but he, but he sees us as righteous, as justified, as if we'd never sinned because he's looking at us through the lens of Jesus. We are in Christ. You see, God sees us as what we're going to be. And of course, God sees us now in time in our struggles, and he helps us in our struggles, and he helps us to overcome them. Yes, he sees that, but, but, but he sees further than that. He sees, he sees us as what we're going to be. He sees us positionally in Christ. He sees the end result, and that's why I love Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 30. I love, uh, I love this uh, verse because not only does it um, show us how God sees us as we're going to be, but it also, for me, gives me comfort to know that I cannot lose my salvation. As a true believer, we can't lose our salvation. And I say true believer. There, there's people who profess to be believers. That's the difference. Even Jesus talked about that. He gave examples of, you know, he talks about the wheat and the tares growing up. They look alike, let them grow up together. At one point, they're going to be separated. So, yes, there's a such thing as false believers, people who profess to be Christians. But when I look at this verse, I see I can't lose my salvation, but I also see how God sees me. He sees me as how I'm going to be. Because look here, it says, moreover, whom he predestined. You know, these are people he predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, Jesus, right? To whom he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And you have to read the verse before. These he also called. And whom he called, these are the ones he justified. And so he called you. You had to respond in faith in order to uh, receive that blessing of justification, which means now we are declared righteous. But listen to this. Whom he justified, he also glorified. And notice the word glorified is in the past tense. But in time, it, is, it hasn't even happened yet. How do I know? Because we're still in these bodies. When we're glorified, when we receive glorified bodies, we won't have a sin nature. We won't, we won't sin anymore. We won't die. There, there's no more death. When we, so glorification hasn't even happened But here you see that God sees it as done. In other words, if you truly have repented and put your faith in Jesus Christ. God sees that process of salvation being completed for the true believer. And I say true believer. But but the question is. Because we see how. how how David views Saul. We see how God chooses to view people. The question is, how do we choose to view people? You see, do, do we choose to see other people, even though they may be believers now? They may be believers now, but do we choose to see them based on what they were before they came to Christ? Do we see them still in their old identity? Or do we choose to see how much they changed after they have come to Christ? Do we choose to see them in Christ? How about this? Do we choose to see or remember other believers based on their worst day? That is just based on one chapter of their lives. Or do we choose to see them based on the whole story of their lives? You see, that, that, that's what's going on in Hebrews chapter 11, for example, in that hall of faith, when he mentions Abraham and, and, all, and Sarah and all these people. And when we see the flaws in the scriptures, but, but there's no flaws mentioned in Hebrews 11. You see, God is basing it on the story of their lives and not just one chapter in their lives. So how are we choosing uh, to, to see other believers? who may have had a bad day. They, maybe somebody close to them died and, and they didn't know how to react and so they lashed out in that day and so you're basing their entire walk based on that one moment of hurt and pain in their lives. Not saying they shouldn't ask for forgiveness for lashing out that way, but hopefully we're seeing the big picture of this study tonight. Do we see People based on the overall stories of their lives do we choose and watch this do do we choose to view unbelievers only as sinful god-rejecting folks or or do we see them as god's creation do do we see those who disagree with our biblical views as people for whom jesus died or do we just see them as people that get on our nerves I can't stand them because they're just not standing up for the biblical views. They're they're way off in left field. Do we see them, Lord? I I know they disagree with the biblical view. I don't agree with them, Lord, but but you died for them. Do do we see them that way? Do we see the non-Christian as potential brothers and sisters in Christ? And I say potential because a person has to be born into the family of God. You know, you just, you just, just because you're a human don't mean you're automatically a child of God. You're a part of his creation, but you become spiritually his child through faith in Jesus Christ, John chapter 1. And you could read that for yourself, the entire chapter, and you'll see that. Do so we see them as potential brothers and sisters in Christ? And I'm talking about when we view non-Christians or, or people who would consider themselves as non-believers, Do we see them? Do we see them as objects of God's love? You know, and why is the way we view people important? Why is that so important as the worship team takes the stage? Why is that important? How we view people. It's important because how we view other people will determine our treatment of them. I'll say that again. How we view others will determine our treatment of them. You don't believe me? Go back to the example with David and Saul. Well, he viewed him as the Lord's anointed. And so he didn't take him out when he had the opportunity to. And when he died, he gave this beautiful funeral song about him. So how we view others will determine our treatment of them. Yes, they, they they're 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 living in sin right now. Yes, they're they're doing things that are not in accord with the word of God. Yes, we acknowledge that, but at the same time we know that Jesus died for these people. That 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 yes, God loves them because we were once there. We were once in that position before Christ. And so this is not, if you're wondering, this is not a call to compromise. This is a call to evangelize. And so what has been shared in this lesson, I'll say it again. What we shared in this lesson is not a call to compromise. It's a call to evangelize. So, yes, we continue to call out sin. We continue to disagree with sin, but what I want you to take away from this is, although we may call those things out, we may spot those things, do not miss an opportunity to share the gospel with a non-Christian. Don't miss an opportunity, all because you're, you're not viewing them as objects of God's love. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for who you are, what you are to us. I thank you, Lord, that for those of us who are in your family right now through Christ, I thank you that we were objects of your love even before we put our faith, our trust in Jesus. Because Your word tells us that the evidence of your love is the very fact that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I thank you, Lord, that personally for me, when I was being of the world and living a lifestyle of sin, you continued to pursue me. Lord, you, you pulled on my heart. You drew me. You wooed me. You didn't force me to believe, but you wooed me, Lord, and you removed my spiritual blinders. And, and many people can have, they, they do have that same testimony. And I thank you for that. And I, and I just pray, Lord, especially since we're living in the last days, that, that Lord, we would understand that you love Those even right now who are in disagreement with you, you love them. Jesus died for them. Help us to have that heart of love to reach out to them with the gospel. And at the same time, not compromise your word. So, Lord, I pray your blessings upon your people tonight. Lord, I pray that. That we would take up this challenge tonight. Each and every one of us, me included. Help us to take up this challenge and be successful, Lord, in in our walk and in our ministry that you've given to us and in our witnessing this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's word. If you have any questions,